Good morning. Were you able to hear me? I guess I don't need this. There we go. The magic of uh, the uh, mask, I guess. So last year, Brian came to me and asked me if I would consider preaching this year, and he gave me a schedule to take a look at and see if there was anything that jumped out at me. And so I took a look at it, and as he did so, he, he kind of mused that it would be interesting if in our series on Hebrews, if someone of my background might be willing to, to share. Because as some of you may not know, if you're watching, you're new to us, or certainly Max, your family's new to us, you don't realize that I come from a Jewish background. I grew up in a Jewish home. And so maybe I have some different insight into the book of Hebrews. I don't know. I hope so. Um, I'll leave it up to God, to, to be quite honest. Uh, so we are looking at the book of Hebrews. And I want to just give maybe a synopsis of each week in just a phrase. Each phrase being, Jesus is better. He's a better what? And so the first week we looked at Jesus as a better prophet or communicator of God's word and what he's looking for. Week two was Jesus is a a better sufferer, someone who went through the greatest pain. Third week was Jesus is the greatest or greater or better focal point or focus for us to put our minds on things above. Week four was Jesus is the better rest. We can rest in him. Week five was Jesus is a better empathizer. He understood what we were going through because of what he suffered, and he can understand what we're going through in our lives. The next week, we talked about Jesus as a better guide to maturity because we saw that these Hebrew people had lost their maturity or hadn't grown to maturity. We looked more specifically at the Word, but we know that the Word is God because that's what the Gospel of John tells us. The next week, it was that Jesus is a better mediator for hope or an anchor for the soul. Two, uh, then Easter, we looked at how Jesus is the better life because he is risen. His life is indestructible. Two weeks ago, it was Jesus is the better covenant. And I'm going to flesh that out more today so that we have a better understanding of what that really means. And last week, it was Jesus is the better way as opposed to the tabernacle. We now have access to the same God who resided in the Holy of Holies, but directly. We don't need a Holy of Holies. And today what we're looking at is that Jesus is the better sacrifice. The better sacrifice. Hebrews, to this point, has been a lot of theology. And for those of you who don't really love theology, good news, this is the last week of it. I know it can be tough to understand, but hopefully we're doing the the right job up here so that you do understand. Chapter 10 really has three parts to it. The first part talks about the law and how it's necessary but insufficient to gain atonement. The second part is the sufficiency of Christ and to the greatest degree. And that's where we get the series title, The Jesus is Better. I'm going to talk about those two parts, and then next week, Brian's going to talk about really the benefit of Christ's sufficiency, more practical applications as we see moving forward in the book of Hebrews. 
So you can open to um, Hebrews 10. We're not going to jump into it right away, uh, but you can open your apps or your Bibles to that, to that book. But you know what? Let me take a moment to pray myself because I always like to anyway. Father God, thank you so much for who you are and what it is you're doing in my life and in our lives. I thank you that you would want to have a relationship with us, your creation. Even though that we have failed you, that you've presented us with a way to come to have a relationship with you and that you would call us to it. Lord, I pray today that the words that I would speak would not be mine, but rather they would be yours. That anything I would say today that is from me will be quickly forgotten, never to be remembered. But those things that are from you, Lord, will be quickened into our hearts and into our minds, finding fertile soil in both places, that as we leave here today, we leave looking more like your Son, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we're talking about today, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about the covenant. Because that's something that made the Jews at that time different than the world around them, all the people groups that were around them, that they had a covenant with God. No one else had a covenant with God because they basically created their gods. And they lived in fear of their gods. But God wanted to have a relationship with us. And so we're going to take a quick look at Genesis 15. We're going to start in verses 7 and go through 10. And it says this. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. What we see here is God is creating something called a blood path covenant. Something that actually the people of that time understood. I found an interesting article online written by uh, Lois Tverberg, and she does a nice job explaining this to us. I'm going to read what she wrote. She says, God was using a method of making a covenant that was well known in the ancient Near East. Typically, both parties would walk through the path of blood to take the covenant upon themselves. Then, part of the sacrifices would be cooked and eaten in a covenantal meal to celebrate the new bond of friendship between them. So this is something that Abram, who, will learn, who we will learn will become Abraham later, understood. And it was something that he was probably experiencing in his life anyway. So he knew what to do with the animals, cut them in half, put them out, facing each other so that the blood ran together. This was not new. We're going to pick up our story in a minute, but I want you to know that he falls into a deep sleep. Abram falls into a deep sleep. Ultimately, God doesn't want him to be a part of something because he knows that he'll fail. And we're going to pick our story up again in verses 17 and 18. It says this, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi or river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. He knew that he wouldn't be able to handle his side of the covenant. So he walked it himself. Lois brings this out further. Ancient covenants were not just business arrangements. They were more like marriages, where the lives of both parties were bound together to each other. 
Marriage is a common theme that we see all throughout Scripture. We're called the bride of Christ, and Christ is called our bridegroom. God understands that that relationship is something we understand, so we would understand what his relationship is supposed to be with us. It is thought that the part of the imagery of the ceremony was that they were merging their lives together by walking through the same blood, which represents life. It is also thought that the ceremony is a way of promising that if either party does not fulfill his end of the covenant, that his life would be forfeited like that of the animals. It's an interesting image beginning to form of the sacrifice of Christ. Lois finishes, It is also interesting that this ceremony is modified from its original form to say something else about God. Normally, both parties pass through the pieces, both committing themselves to the covenant. Here, only God passes through the pieces as if he is making a unilateral promise to fulfill his covenant. No matter what Abram does, or by extension, all of humanity. His constancy and faithfulness are unwavering and thankfully not dependent on the fickleness of humankind. Can I get an amen on that? So we see that the covenant is made and God unilaterally makes it himself, basically. And so you might think, okay, well, God did all the work. What do I got to do? I'm just going to sit back and relax. God has expectations of us. There's still an expectation that he has of us. And what is that expectation? To be holy. He calls us to be holy. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45 say this. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a common passage that's quoted elsewhere in Scripture because of its importance. But we're not holy. At least, we don't act very holy. So I want to get into the parts of today's passage in, in Hebrews. Part one is the law, the, the sacrificial system for atonement. See, the law was weak and imperfect, but it was necessary. If we look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, here's what we read. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, but not the realities themselves. That's not all of verse 1, but I want to stop there for a moment because I want you to understand this idea of a shadow and the realities between shadows and reality. You see a picture here, it looks like uh, a shadow of a, a dog, maybe a boxer or Labrador, I, I don't know. I'm not very good with dog breeds. I do like dogs, but I don't know them very well. Uh, and then there's a picture of two people looking, gazing at, at each other's eyes, I suppose. Right? Very nice picture. Uh, interesting shadows, for sure. You can go to the next one. Here's the reality. There's no dog. And these people don't know each other at all. That picture uh, is a guy at a golf tournament fiddling with a camera. The hat looks like the dog's head, and his shoulder is probably the dog's back. <laughs> Meanwhile, the two people walking past each other have no relation to each other. They just happen to be walking at the exact time that that person took a picture. <laughs> what is the reality of the circumstances? 
Certainly not what the, the shadow is showing you. If we finish chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Because it's just a shadow. It, it gives you an idea, maybe, of what it is. But it's not the reality of what it is. Think of it this way. When you were a kid, like maybe you are a kid, and you're lying in bed, and, and maybe you see some shadows displayed on the ceiling or, or on the wall, and they look a little menacing. It's kind of scary. You think of a horror movie, the shadows come to life. Or it's a thunderstorm, all of a sudden there's flashes of, of a shadow showing up. Is that the reality? Is, it, is a shadow going to do something to you? No, but we, we, we had fear about it. The law was necessary. It was a necessary blueprint. But it's not meant to be the ultimate authority or system of reconciliation. It's basically a placeholder. And if I can jump ahead just for a moment to verse 8, it says this. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Recognizing that the law was there and they did things in accordance with it, but it's not a perfect system. And we look at the idea of animals as part of this sacrificial system, but see, animals are insufficient. They're insufficient because they don't equal humanity in terms of our nature. Right? God created man in his own image, not animals. Man has, the, has been given the authority to rule over animals and all the living things on earth. So there's a hierarchy here. Animals do not equal man. And so animals are insufficient. But not only are they insufficient to us, but they're insufficient to God, the one who was offended. When we look at Hebrews, looking at verses 2 through 4, we see, otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered, meaning the animals? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this is something that the, the people did begin to understand. David makes that claim in, in Psalm 51, verse 16 says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The king of the Jews in this, in this time frame understands where God is going with this. But he understands that there's something that has to be sacrificed. The other part of the animals is that they can't volunteer to be sacrificed. The level of righteousness that must be attained for God's uh, acceptance can't be attained if the animals can't volunteer. The animals aren't sacrificing themselves. We are. The sacrificial system was known to be insufficient prior to David even. And David may have been quoting Samuel because in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel's talking to Saul who messed up again. And he's getting tired of it. 
He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Saul, you keep screwing up. God's not interested in your sacrifices anymore. He wants you to obey. He told you to do something. You didn't do it. That's what he wants from you. But what about us? Do we go around sacrificing animals because we've sinned or something along those lines? Of course not. I mean, notwithstanding it's against the law to do that, we just don't need to do that anymore. We don't do that. But what do we do? The author is telling the Hebrews, stop going back to the way you were. Well, what do we do? We go back to the path of least resistance. What was easy for us before? Maybe it was we, we sort of stopped reading the Word of God. We stopped meditating. We stopped praying as fervently or as frequently. Maybe our focus wanders a little bit from time to time as we're sitting in small group or maybe we make excuses not to go to small group or even here today, coming to church. Maybe your mind is wandering, thinking about, oh, I've got to put milk on the... Uh, Grocery list. We're not in the moment with God. God wants meaningful worship. And we let ourselves drift away. Don't be Hebrew in this way. The law was insufficient for atonement. Don't go back, Hebrew. Don't go back. But still, a sacrifice is necessary for atonement. God does require a sacrifice. Our imperfection and unholiness means we cannot reside with God in heaven. We cannot have an intimate relationship with God. Any amount of sin separates us from God eternally. And so the sacrifice that's required is what will give us the opportunity to be with Him forever. And now we're at part two. We looked at the law and its insufficiency. Now we look at Jesus and that Jesus is sufficient. We look at Hebrews, looking at verses 5 and 6. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Here's, there's a couple of points here, basically four points I want to make out of this. Um, that Jesus is sufficient. The first is that he was prepped. He was prepared to be the sacrifice. That was his job. So he was prepared from the get-go. You see, again, he had to be of equal value to us. And what do we know? That he was born just like us. That he lived a life. I wouldn't say just like us, but he lived a life. He lived a generation. Matthew 3.17 says this, And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. So we know that God loved Jesus and would accept Him. But also that He would be acceptable for God. You see, he was God. And yet, what he did was he emptied himself. Philippians 2 tells us that. 
that even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be obtained or, or reached for. He emptied himself and became a servant and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He could have reached out and, and used his godliness at any point, but he was trying to show us what it meant to rely on God. And for that reason, God would accept his sacrifice. The other part of it is that he could, he could volunteer to do it, unlike the animals. He could volunteer, and he did, because that was his purpose. The next point is that Jesus fulfills Scripture. In verse 7, we see it says this, Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. I have come to do your will is written about me. Matthew 5.17 reiterates this. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now there's three what I'll call offices of Christ or aspects of who he is. Prophet, priest, king, we've heard of those terms. And in this case, we look at priests. That he satisfies the demands for the sake of atonement. Because that's what a priest was meant to do. But he does it so much greater than any high priest, including Melchizedek, as we talked about in previous sermons. A great high priest. He was greater than all of them. Further, Jesus is a perfect and perfecting sacrifice. We've seen that he's been prepped for it, but also not just the moment of sacrifice, but what happens after that for us, those who believe. It's an ongoing situation. The moment he gave his life, and we believe on that, is the moment of our justification. We are justified in the eyes of God. But we still have to live this life. You and I are still here. And that process of becoming holy is what's called sanctification. And Jesus is sufficient even for that. And prepped for that as well. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Until he comes back. There's no need for a whole bunch of animals year after year after year. It'd be like, hey, I, get me another goat. I messed up again. What, we're out of goats? Ooh, I mess up a lot. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have to sacrifice these animals over and over and over again. And it's not going to mean anything. Now, just because we become justified doesn't mean life is going to be easy. But Jesus is there. That's what I mean is that's the process of sanctification. He's there to take that ride with you. The next point is that Jesus came to do the Father's will, not his own agenda. Hebrews 9. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, meaning covenant. 
Then we see also this John 6.38 shows us, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. There is a plan in place, a story that is unfolding, that God created from the beginning of his creation. And so what we see here is now the prophet of Christ, the prophecy that he is, to reveal the will of God. That's the job of a prophet, to reveal the will of God. He satisfies the first covenant in order to establish the second, and by the way, the last covenant. There is no more covenants because he's coming back. We see this Luke chapter 4 shows us how he goes to the temple to worship like anyone else on the Sabbath. And he reads from the Torah, because that was common in those days, that rabbis would come in, different rabbis would come and read. And then what they would do is they would sit down and preach. And we pick up our story there. Verses 20 and 21. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's revealing the will of God. Today, this scripture is fulfilled. And finally, the office of king. Kings make edicts. They make laws. Well, in this case, because he's king, he makes divine laws. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? Of course, he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then he adds one. The The second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. He had the authority to make that statement. Almost as if he took the Ten Commandments and broke them into two pieces. I mean, they were broken into pieces, weren't they? (laughs) (laughs) And made one about God, and all the rest of them he squished together and said, love your neighbor as yourself. Here you go. Jesus could do that. He's the only one who can do that. Jesus is sufficient. Now the last section of our text, we're going to see how the the author here is really nailing the the coffin shut on the law and and its inefficiency or insufficiency. And to show the efficacy or how effective Christ really is. His death was once for all. Here are the points to know. Three points here. Jesus will perfectly deliver those who put faith in him. Completely and totally. Holiness and eternal joy. Holiness and eternal joy. As a quick note, and you think of the times when he healed people. People who couldn't see, people who couldn't walk. He'd say, you're healed. What would they do? They'd jump up and run away. They could see perfectly. The healing was perfect. It was immediate. Because that's the condition of our heart when he accepts us after we've asked him for forgiveness. Immediate. Hebrews 10, again, looking at verses 10 and 11. And, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Once and done. 
We don't need this intermediary between us and God anymore. You've heard of the term rose-colored glasses. Looking at the word, world through rose-colored glasses, how people have this almost overly optimistic view of the way in which the world is. And sometimes it's, they stick their head in the sand because they're trying to ignore some of the more unpleasant elements of this world. And they just, they feel it, they look like they're in la-la land. Well, God looks at us through glasses as well, but he looks at, our, looks at us through blood-covered glasses, the blood of Christ. When he looks at, at you and me who believe in Christ as a substitute for our sin, he looks through the blood to see you. He'll perfectly deliver us. The work of the Levitical priests, even they had to get clean to offer our, sin, our sacrifice. Jesus didn't have to do that. The second point is that he earned the privilege and the position next to God because of his suffering. He is at the right hand of God the Father. He can rest there. Verses 12 through 14. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He doesn't have to do this work again. The hard part's done. All he has to do is come back and get us. Now, is there a battle coming? Yeah, but he's not afraid of it. He won't feel pain. He only had to die and be resurrected once. Romans 6, such a great passage, verses 3 through 10 say this. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who had died had, had been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. He cannot die again. And see, he sits there at the right hand of God the Father. Does he use it for his own enjoyment? Does he use it for himself? No. He uses it for us. He intercedes for us. Romans 8.34 tells us Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And that he gets the opportunity as he's up there to wait for his enemies. Psalm 110, 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's coming. 
But right now, he gets to rest because he did the hard work. The third point is that God established a new covenant on our hearts. The new covenant is established here. There's no need for external pomp and circumstance any longer. God hated that. In chapter 8, Steve was telling us about that idea. And that the, the verbiage he used is that the, the covenant is infused within us. It's in our blood. It's who we are now. It's in our body. And we look at verses 15 through 18, we see this. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where, there, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. It's not about a mechanical action of atone, for atonement, killing an animal. That's insufficient anyway. It's about our faith. And we're going to see that coming up in chapter 11. It's one of my favorite chapters in, in Scripture, what faith really is. But that's what it's about. An inward position as opposed to an outward expression. Let me say that again. An inward position in Christ as opposed to an outward expression or doing of something that we would fail at anyway. I mentioned before that, that David understood this in Psalm 51, verse 16. But let's add 17 to that as well. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. A broken spirit. That's different than the blood of animals. To restore a reunion with him and to enjoy him forever in heaven. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Don't go back, Hebrew. Don't go back. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and your message. I, Lord, I just pray that this would just really find its way into our hearts and into our minds. That we wouldn't go back to the old way of our lives. And maybe it's the just how it sneaks up on us and we've, all of a sudden we find ourselves wondering where you, where you are. You haven't changed. It's us. Lord, help us to renew and reinvigorate our passion for you that we might understand how you are the better covenant and the better sacrifice. That we might rely on that and enjoy that. We thank you so much, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.